morning. It is good to see everybody here this morning. And if you have your Bibles, get them out, open them up to Matthew chapter 21. You know, have you thought about just the significant urgency of our time? I mean, doesn't it feel like that, like important things are going on? One of the things that I was thinking about is that actually at all times, it's significant. All times are urgent. But sometimes we sense that more than at other times. I remember uh, what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, where he said, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time, because the days are evil. You know, sometimes uh, we can, oh, there, hey, we're here. The, uh, um, because the days are evil. You know, sometimes the evil of our day is more apparent than at other times. And uh, this morning, we're going to be considering the authority of Jesus and how that's displayed in verse 1 through 27 of Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has authority. And when we think about um, just the urgent purpose of the church, the authority of Jesus impacts what we do, our purpose as a church. Not just that, but the authority of Jesus impacts the urgency and the priority of how you live your life, what you do, what you are devoted to. And uh, the authority of Jesus impacts the perspective that we have on life. You know, we are never losing Life is never out of control. Circumstances are never dire. I mean, do you have a sense in your life as you live and as you watch things going on in the news, as you just hang out in your neighborhood, as you talk to people, do you have a sense of the incredible opportunity, the incredible blessing of our time and the way that God can use us in a powerful way, the way that God can use circumstances to get our attention to think about life as it really is. You know, the authority of Jesus is both a comfort. This is something we're going to see this morning. It is both a comfort and it's a warning. Um, it's a comfort because the authority of Jesus allows you and me to live boldly knowing that Jesus is in complete control of everything, that he's merciful. That's one of the things we're going to see in our passage is God's mercy, Jesus's love, the way that he cares about people, how gracious he is, his powerful hand in the lives of people who follow him. And so there, it's this incredible comfort. When you think about um, our times are politically, you know, they're, they're tumultuous. But when you think about that, in some ways, there are people I've talked to who have said, you know, I'm seeing things happen. This is not just the normal swing of political things. There's fundamental things going on. And the thing that I would just like to communicate to us, actually, I don't know if that's true or not. Hey, this just could be like normal political swings, or maybe these are life-changing events. But here's the thing that I want everyone to know. The things that we're facing in our country, the things that we're going through, no matter how people might predict the outcome, is nothing new. It may be new for you. It may be new in our circumstances. But in history, um, radical things have been happening. 
And none of that changes the fact that Jesus is in authority. None of that changes the fact that we don't need politics. We don't need the stock market. We don't need the favor of powerful people in our lives, our employers, our neighbors, our friends. We need nobody but Jesus. And that's actually one of the things that is communicated in this passage about the authority of Christ. Jesus is all we need. You know, this is also a very sobering passage. And it's very sobering because it actually communicates a truth that it's true now, but it is always true. And that is this, that God's amazing grace displayed all through scripture has a time limit. There is a time when God's grace runs out where he says, I'm merciful, I'm patient, you can shake your fist in my face, and I'm still going to love you, I'm still going to bless you, I'm still going to cause good things to happen in your life. And there are people who have a fundamental misunderstanding of God's grace and kindness. They think that reverence for God is unimportant, they think that they are in control, they think they have power. And they misunderstand that God is gracious but Jesus always has authority, and there is a time limit. One of the things that we're going to see in Scripture, and, and actually that I'm kind of looking forward to as I think about our times, um, Jesus in this last week of his life is going to talk about his return. He's going to talk about some devastating things that are going to happen to the nation of Israel. He's going to talk about his return in the millennial kingdom and his second coming. And, and, I've, and I just think about, okay, these are real. Man, I can't wait to get to that passage. But one of the things that we realize is that all of creation, there is a time limit to God's grace. Jesus is coming back, and God's grace ends for everybody. On a national level, there are time limits. There was a time limit for the nation of Israel, and God said, I'm giving you grace, and I'm being merciful to you, but your time is up. You are going to be wiped out and destroyed. So there was like a national time level. But in another sense, there is a personal time limit to God's grace. For you and me, God's pouring out his grace, but every once in a while God says, your time is up, and people leave this life. It's one of the things I thought about, you know, just with all this COVID stuff, the way that people have thought about ministry and approached ministry and things like that, and I think about churches who they want to close down because of the threat of COVID and things like that. And I was just thinking about this week. When COVID hit, doctors didn't say, okay, there's COVID, it's dangerous, I'm going home. You want to know one of the things that did not happen? Nobody went through all the cities and towns and said, hey, it's dangerous, there's COVID, let's close the hospitals. Nobody did that. And you want to know the truth is that the church... And our personal ministry is more important than a doctor. It is more important than a hospital. Because the things that we do, the things that we're committed to, the things that we are working on are of eternal value. It's not just whether you live or die today. It's where you spend forever. And while hospitals and doctors are important, so that people can manage their blood pressure and stay healthy. And it's not just the crisis of COVID, it's long-term well-being. The ministry of the church is significant and we cannot afford to waste any time 
training, laying a foundation, ministering to, when we think about, oh man, maybe there's going to be disaster and persecution. When we think about those things, that's not a time to shut things down. That's a time to take three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, teenagers, adults, and to lay a foundation and say, okay, if we're facing these trying, difficult, challenging times, how do we help you learn and function in a way that you'll be able to survive and live? You know, I thought about the way prosperity sometimes just makes us so, nah, it just puts us at ease. Well, think about the difference between parenting during prosperity and parenting during persecution. See, there are places where if you want to live as a Christian, you may be killed. There are missionaries who go into the Middle East, they plant churches, they share the gospel, and from their house they may be drug outside and beheaded on TV. And, and if you said to them, hey, you might get sick if you go to church, I think they wouldn't care. because they're, Not because they don't value or don't see the significance or the danger of those things, but because there's actually something that is more important And I think about that, you know, you're a parent and you're a Christian and you're trying to teach your kids to honor the Lord, to follow the Lord, or maybe a person that you're discipling. What's the difference between prosperity and persecution? See, in prosperity, we're like, hey, you should love God. You should obey God. So you should be blessed. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't be dishonest at work. It's like we want to moralize people so that they can have a good life. But how different is it When you're parenting your kid and you're trying to teach them, you need to love God. God is worth giving your life for. But you have in mind, my kid might watch me be tortured and brutally killed because of Jesus. And when that happens, how will they respond? Are they going to say, God, I love you. You were supposed to protect my dad and look what happened. He was brutally murdered. I hate you for what you've let happen to my dad. Or the dad who looks at his kid and he says, when you see me brutally killed and murdered because of Jesus, I want you to know that that that's a blessing, that was a privilege, that was a happy sacrifice to make. And not only should you not hate God because of that, but you should be ready to stand up the next day and be executed on behalf of Christ. Like what's the difference in our parenting and in our perspective? And I think sometimes the reason that we're just so willing and happy to shut things down at the, at the slightest resistance is because we don't actually think about life correctly. We don't actually think about the authority of Jesus and what that means. And that's one of the things I love about this passage is we're going to see some things, you know, uh, the first few verses of our passage are probably, it's probably a passage you've heard like 25 or more sermons on. But I want to just think about the authority of Jesus, what was happening at the time, and what it means for you and I. So I I just want to start by just uh, saying a little bit about authority. So authority has two elements to it. 
authority has right. It's the right over everything. When we talk about the authority of Jesus, Jesus has the authority over your life. He has the authority over the world. He has the authority over everyone's life. Jesus owns everyone and everything, and everything exists for Jesus' glory. You know, that's what Paul, Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So that's Jesus' right. Jesus has the right to tell us what to do. Jesus has the right to require anything of us. That's Jesus' authority. But there's another element of that, and that is power. There is no authority without power. And one of the things that we're going to see in this passage is not only does Jesus have the right to do all these things, and our passage is going to end with the Pharisees saying to Jesus, what gives you the authority to do this? But not only does Jesus have the right, but it's kind of funny. They're sitting there saying, what gives you authority to do this? But Jesus just did it all, and there's nothing they could do about it. Um, Authority brings with it power. And uh, that's actually something that Matthew's been showing us about Jesus all through the book of Matthew. Um, In Matthew chapter 7, it says that Jesus taught with authority different than anybody else. In Matthew 8, verse 9, when, when the Roman centurion comes to Jesus and he says, will you heal my servant? He says to Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. Like the Romans saw Jesus' authority. You don't even have to come to my house. I'm a man of authority. I tell people to do stuff and they just do it. All you have to do is command and my servant will be better. And Jesus says, okay. So he commands it and his servant is better. Um, Jesus' authority is laid out all in the book of Matthew. Um, When Matthew says to a a man who's sick, your sins are forgiven. Um, The Pharisees are like, hey, who does this guy think he is to be able to forgive sins? And Jesus says, just to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to tell this guy, get up and walk. He actually heals does this miracle that nobody could do just because Jesus has authority over everything. And if he can tell a lame person get up and walk, if he can raise a lame, uh, dead person to life, he can forgive sins because all of those things go together. So Jesus, um, man, he has authority. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. So there's four events that we're going to look at. And these four events, they demonstrate the authority of Jesus. But this is not just for us to sit back and look at and go, oh, wow, these events demonstrate the authority of Jesus, these events call for a personal response. And there's a personal response for people who know Jesus. When you see the authority of Jesus worked out, that should impact the way you think about life, the way you feel about life, and what you do, if you're a believer. Now, also, um, these four Um, stories that are going to show the authority of Jesus have a significant uh, personal, they call for a significant personal response in the life of a person who doesn't know the Lord, in the life of a religious person who thinks they have authority and who thinks they can dictate things to Jesus. It calls for a personal response of submission, of worship, 
and of believing in Jesus. So here's our things that we're going to see. We're going to see, first of all, the authority of Jesus expressed in a peaceful entry to Jerusalem with Jesus as king. We'll see that in the first 11 verses. Um, This is, by the way, that first one. It is um, Palm Sunday. It's usually what happens the week before Easter. This was the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. So I say we just jump right in. Let's read it, and then let's consider this first event. The authority of Jesus is expressed in a peaceful entry as king. Look at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say that to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus is, one of the things you see, and this is throughout Jesus' ministry, he is in complete control of everything. He always knows what's going to happen. He tells his disciples, go and do this, and it happens. And there's, there's a lot of things happening here. Um, one of them is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy throughout this passage. The Old Testament said, this is going to happen, and then that is exactly what happens. And Jesus in this, these things are not just a demonstration of Jesus' power, control, knowledge, and authority. These things are also a proof that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior King that was promised. He is God in the flesh. And so there's that element, but Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. Jesus is not afraid. He's not worried. You know, we had talked about uh, last week just how Jesus had much distress about this week. And I think we can get confused. We can think Jesus was distressed because he's going into a town where everybody hates him and potentially he'll be killed and he's kind of afraid of all these things. That had nothing to do with Jesus's distress. He was never afraid of any person. We'll see that. That had to do with the fact that his purpose was to bear the wrath of God for mankind. Jesus wasn't afraid of a crown of thorns. He was afraid or he was distressed by the eternity in hell times every person on earth that he was going to face. And so Jesus here is in complete control. He's in complete command. He's fulfilling scripture. Look at verse 6. And the disciples went and they did as Jesus directed him. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they put their their, their cloaks and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. 
So this is an amazing thing, and, and we know, and these are, these are some things that you know because you've heard this so many times, probably 25 or more times, but this was a massive celebration. Jesus is coming into town, and, and his disciples and everybody thinks, oh man, this is the time Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. We are going to get what we want. When they were saying Hosanna, that just means please save us. They didn't have spiritual things in mind. They had political things in mind. In a sense, this crowd that loves Jesus, that's chanting, that's cheering, that's laying the coats on the donkeys, that's, that's all these things, they're recognizing who Jesus is, but they have a personal agenda. The disciples are seeing who Jesus is, but they have a completely different picture of what's happening. Jesus is famous. Everybody is cheering for him. The Pharisees who hate Jesus are so discouraged. They hate Jesus and they want to kill him. And what are they going to do because of these crowds? So this is the worst day for the Pharisees. It is the best day for the disciples and for many people in Israel as they think to themselves, Jesus is coming and he's kicking the Romans out. Like that's what everyone thinks is happening. And the only one who really knows what's happening is Jesus. And by Friday, everything is going to turn around. The disciples are going to be shattered. The crowds are going to be shouting, crucify him. And the Pharisees, who today think they're losing, are going to think they've won. And in the midst of all of that, the authority of Jesus doesn't change. And that's something for you and I to think about as we consider our life, as things go up and down, as things seem like they're going well, God's in control. And when everything seems like it's melting down, God is in control. So Jesus comes, and uh, one of the things that we see is there's that external testimony of who Jesus is, the fulfilled prophecy. But you know what? There's something internal going on. People recognize that Jesus, there's something unique about Jesus. He was humble. He was normal. But there was something about Jesus that was completely different, and people recognize that. So that's, that's what's happening here. Jesus has the authority to come in and say, I'm the king, and he comes in, and it doesn't matter who hates him. Do you remember the disciples when Lazarus, they found out Lazarus was sick? And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go heal Lazarus. And they're like, Jesus, you can't do that. Because everybody in Jerusalem, that's their stronghold. That's where the people who hate you are, the really powerful people. We got to run around. You know, Jesus kind of left and he was, you know, going around other places. And the disciples probably felt like, well, that's the power. That's the power center of power for the Pharisees. So we kind of got to get away from that. You remember Thomas? He's like, well, okay, fine. <laughs> if you're going to go to Jerusalem, I'll go with you and die. No, Jesus wasn't afraid to go to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem when the time was right. He had the authority to ride in and say, I am a humble king, and I am going to come into town, and I'm going to have the glory that's due me, even though the people giving me glory don't even fully understand what they're doing or saying. Now, there's a, a kind of a, an important warning in this. There's plenty of people who cheer for Jesus, but they don't know who Jesus is. Like the crowds, Jesus, uh, you're here to save us from the Romans. In fact, there was one passage after Jesus feeds the 5,000 that the crowd, it's like Jesus says he disappeared because the crowd was like, he's doing miracles. Let's take him and let's force him to be our king for their goals, for their end. See, when we come to worship Jesus, we don't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, make my business successful, make my life good, answer all my prayers, do these things for me. Yes, Jesus, I've come so that you can be my servant. 
That's not following Jesus. We come to Jesus and we bow down and we serve him. And one of the disasters is that churches are full of people who cheer Jesus, but they think they are in authority. No, Jesus is in authority. And he's going to demonstrate that by cleansing the temple. Not only does he ride in um, on this donkey as king, as foretold in the Old Testament, but let's look at verse 12. Jesus is not only coming into Jerusalem whenever he feels like it, but he's going to go into the temple, the power place of the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and, and the people who were the religious leaders of the day, and he's going to turn things upside down. Let's, let's look at this, Matthew 21, 12. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came into him into the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. You know, this is an interesting thing because Jesus is going to go into the temple and we think about Jesus as loving and gracious and we forget that even as Jesus was the suffering servant, he saw things that made him mad. There were, there were several times um, throughout the ministry of Jesus where Jesus saw things that made him mad and this is one of them. By the way, when Jesus started his ministry, you want to know what the very first thing he did was? He went to the temple and he cleansed it and then right before he dies, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. Jesus is in complete power. He has complete authority. And, and it's interesting, it talks about these wonderful things that the Pharisees are seeing. And they get mad because Jesus is messing with their system. But Jesus is walking in. He says, no, this is my temple. This temple is to worship me. You are, you are taking the worship of me and you are using it to serve yourself. You are using it for your best interests. You know, when you think about church, you think about ministry and the way that religion can be perverted and, and, and just used to control people and to rob people. You know, th there are a lot of people who, when they consider the body of Christ, they don't think about it as the bride of Christ. Uh, in the same way, the Pharisees thought, oh yeah, this religious system is mine to use for my glory, for my power, for my riches. And Jesus just walked in and said, nope. And he cleanses the temple. He drives these people out. You know, I just want to talk a little bit about that. There are lots of pastors and preachers and, and things like that, you know, that you can see on TV that, that use religion to manipulate people, to get money for themselves, to get power, to get authority, to get influence. And they pollute religion. There are people who show up to church because they want to network for business. 
And, and I know that there's this guy, and this is not, nothing about insurance agents. I mean, this happens everywhere, all kinds of things. But this one man is starting out as an insurance agent. And one of the things his mentor said is the first thing you need to do is you need to get into a church where you get to know some people. That's a great place to get some business. There's a lot of people. See, it's easy for us to look at these, these, these uh, TV preachers and these, these people preaching this false gospel for their own ends. And it's really easy for us to look at them, but not think about the way that happens actually for the average person. Some people see church as a way to make business connections. How about this? There's people that when they're in church, they don't think about church as, hey, this church belongs to God. The people here are the bride of Christ. And so people in church, instead of loving each other, encouraging each other, sometimes people get in fights and conflicts. And, you know, I've talked to so many people that they're just like, man, I hate church. Every time you go there and you, there's all this conflict and fighting and division, and, and, and that happens, right? Uh, we see churches that are supposed to build each other up, that are supposed to serve Christ. And instead, people think this church belongs to me. This church is about me. And when I get mad at somebody else, I'll try to hurt them by hurting the church or division in the body of Christ and, and conflict and things like that, like church splits. Almost always church splits come about because you have groups of people that think the church belongs to them and because they're willing to hurt the church because of a personal vendetta against somebody else. They don't think to themselves, no matter what, don't hurt other people in this church those are God's children. No matter what, do not do anything to hurt the body of Christ. This is Jesus' bride. And the Pharisees were just like that. They polluted the temple. Uh, they were stealing and robbing for people in the name of worship. And Jesus just comes in and he's angry and he dumps the tables over and he drives them out. You know, nobody would look at that and go, wow, that was a peaceful, spirit-filled, loving thing. But you want to know something? That was righteous anger. And when Jesus did that, there was nothing anybody could do about it. Uh, one of the things that I think is amazing is that the Pharisees are robbing people. And Jesus goes into the temple and all the blind and the deaf and the dumb people, the people that were struggling, they showed up to the temple, people who weren't normally allowed in. And Jesus heals them. Now, that's an expression of two things. I mean, the fact that Jesus is healing means that Jesus is God. But beyond that, that is an expression of God's love for people. And one of the things I want to say, I don't care how corrupt religion is anywhere, that says nothing about a true relationship with Christ. That's something different. And Jesus just demonstrates that. And the Pharisees, do you like the way that Matthew says this? <laughs> when the Pharisees see wonderful things, they get mad. See, there's two people mad here. Jesus is mad and the Pharisees are mad. But actually, the only person that's mad that matters is Jesus. And so in your life, don't think about whether other people are mad at you. That doesn't matter. You think about whether or not Jesus is mad at you. That's actually the only thing that matters and so Jesus comes in, he clears, he clears out this temple, and we see Jesus' power. Now, I just want to make a couple quick observations. First of all, Jesus' power is irresistible. When he goes into the temple, there is nothing anybody can do about it. That was true then, and it is true now. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was selective. You know, he just cleansed the temple on that one day. He didn't fix anything, everything. 
And that's actually a very confusing thing. That's an expression of God's grace. But that's sometimes, when we see Jesus selectively taking care of problems, sometimes we think, well, these other problems are outside of Jesus' control. There's other times that it's very deceptive to the people who are rebelling against God. Because they think, oh yeah, Jesus did this, but look at all these other things I'm doing. God has no control. Jesus has no control. And, and actually, instead of recognizing God's grace and patience, it makes them arrogant. And they think that Jesus' power is somewhat limited. So it's important for us to recognize that Jesus' authority, it's irresistible. It is selective. In this passage, it's used for good. And the other thing is that it's obvious. There's a lot of people who, in a sense, are blind to who Jesus is. But it's obvious. Even the kids are praising who Jesus is. So it's obvious. Everybody sees it, but some people suppress it. Let's look at this third expression of Jesus' authority. This is interesting. It's, it's, it's a great warning, and it also is an incredible encouragement. Verse 18 in the morning as he was returning to city. So one of the things that Jesus that happens in this week, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he does things, but Lazarus lives about two miles from Jerusalem. And so every, every at the end of the day, Jesus goes to Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house and he spends the night there. And then in the morning he goes back into town. It's about two miles. So if you've ever walked around the RSM Lake twice, that's about how far Jesus walked at the end of the day. And then he would come back. And so Jesus is on his way back and in the morning as he's returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. So Jesus is just walking into town. And now this is a, it is a communication, Jesus cursing this tree because of a lack of fruit, there's a lot of things going on. But one of those, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus saying to the nation of Israel, you've got leaves, you have the appearance of life, you have the religion, but you don't actually have any real fruit. There's no real life in you. And so as Jesus walks into town, he curses this fig tree, which is what's about to happen to the nation of Israel. We'll look at this in, in the coming weeks. But about 40 years later, Israel's destroyed. And Jesus is just saying to Israel, your time's up. And he curses this tree. Now, the tree's out of season. One of the other gospel writers tells us that. But fig trees usually, you know, I've read this. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a fig tree expert, but I have, you know, just in my reading. Fig trees are supposed to have figs before or at the same time that they have leaves. And so Jesus is walking. Jesus is hungry. He walks over to a tree, and it doesn't matter if it's in season or not. He sees leaves. That means it should have fruit. And when he walks over to the tree, he's like, I'm hungry. There's no food for me. Uh, you are cursed. And people are like, you know, think about all the people who want to save the trees. What? Jesus destroyed a tree. You know, this is the thing. Jesus gets whatever he wants. He is in charge. It doesn't matter if it's in season or not. It, none, none of that stuff matters. When Jesus walks up, you give Jesus what he wants. And when he's hungry and you don't give him food, you are cursed and you're going to wither. That is an expression of judgment, of God's authority. And there's a lot of people who go through life, oh, that's not fair. They have this reason or that reason. Jesus does whatever he wants. And people confuse Jesus' grace 
and they just think, oh, Jesus is unimportant. I do whatever I want. No, we need to have a reverence and a fear for Jesus. And so he walks up. This tree doesn't have fruit. He just curses it. Now, it's interesting the encouraging response that the disciples have. Here, look at this, this interaction. So he curses it. It withers it once. Now, in the other Gospels, we find out that this, this happens on two separate days where Jesus curses the tree. It, it immediately withers, and the disciples actually notice it on the next day. They're like, look, that tree's like dead. Oh, my goodness, how'd that happen? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. An incredible promise that Jesus gives his disciples. So he's judging this tree as a symbol of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. His disciples see it. They're amazed. And Jesus just tells them, actually, you're amazed by how powerful I am. All you have to do is pray and believe and have faith. And my power, I love you. You're my child. My power will be expressed in your life. You ever pray about things? Trust God. Believe that he can do what you're asking, knowing that God loves you and that God is in control of everything. And I have prayed about some things, I would say, in the last month or so that are just so concerning to me. And I see them and I pray about them and then God works and he does miracles and he accomplishes these amazing things. And Jesus just says to his disciple, yeah, I have complete authority. And when you're my child and when you follow me, I will care for you. You pray, you trust me. Now, some people get hung up on, uh, this says if you ask anything, it will be given to you as long as you have enough faith. And then people take that and they run with it. I remember this one pastor, his daughter got in a car accident. She was paralyzed. He prayed for her to be um, restored and she wasn't restored. And everybody in the church said, yeah, you're a man of a lack of faith. I mean, there's a promise your daughter would be healed. So obviously you don't have enough faith. It was like this big difficulty. You know, Jesus clarified that. Jesus said, if you ask anything according to my will, the apostle Paul prayed and God said, no, I have better plans for you. Jesus says uh, in James, um, Jesus speaking through James says, you have Um, You ask, but you don't have because you ask with wrong motives. First John says, when we pray anything according to God's will, he hears us. Um, Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If If you live with your wife in not an understanding way, that hinders your prayers. But the point Jesus is making here is I have all authority. I have all power. And when you love me, when you faithfully serve me, when you pray for my will, there is nothing that I can't do for you or that I won't do for you. Think about Romans 8, where God says, if God didn't spare Jesus, but he gave his life for us, won't he freely with him give us all things? See, we have no reason to fear when we see the incredible authority of Jesus. We don't need to fear 
our enemies. We don't need to fear Jesus' enemies because Jesus has authority. He curses trees when they don't give him food. And, and, if, and if Jesus is in that much control and you are a child of Jesus, you have nothing to fear. Let's look at the fourth one here in verse 23. Jesus' authority is expressed in overcoming resistance. I love this, this passage. This is probably, I mean, actually, I, I guess I can't say it's my favorite part because it all has to be equally my favorite, but I like this, this one. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? I mean, I just love this. Um, you're questioning his authority. Obviously, he has the authority, and he has the power, and there's nothing you can do about it. He went into your house. He went to the home court. He went to where you're most powerful, and he just walked all over you, and now you're going to question his authority? Aside from that, he spent his whole ministry up to this point pointing to his authority, demonstrating his authority. When they question, who is this who says that he can forgive sins? He says, well, let me heal this guy. So you'll know I do have authority. So this is not his first conversation with them about authority. They're, they're trying to trap him. And one of the things that I love about this is Jesus understands their heart. He understands their motivations. And Jesus just says, actually, um, I'm so powerful that I've decided that in this little battle, you are going to overcome yourself. Jesus doesn't even overcome them. He just says, I'm going to let you overcome yourself now. I mean, nobody is any match for Jesus. And so these powerful Pharisees, as smart as they think they are, Jesus just kind of dismisses them. He's like, oh, yeah, you want to oppose me? Well, here, go beat yourself in this battle. Let's look at what he does here. Who's given you this authority, verse 24? And Jesus says, well, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? So Jesus just asked them a simple question that ties them in knots. There's some interesting things to notice about this. And actually what's really cool is we actually have their thinking. We understand exactly what happened because Matthew explains it. Let's read the rest. And they discussed it among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they're in this catch 22. We can't say yes and we can't say no. You want to know what's interesting in their answer? What they don't think about is what's true. When he says to them, where did John's baptism come from? They weren't thinking to themselves, well, where did John's baptism come from? Let's tell the truth. That is actually not on their agenda. Their agenda is, okay, how can we answer this in a way that will control our outcome to be what we want? You know what, there is a fundamental problem with people who live their lives that way. Did you, do you know how many people live their lives that way? When people ask them questions, they don't think what's true. Like, I remember one time I walked into the backyard and Jackson's crying. And John has a bat in his hand. And I walk outside and I said, um, what happened to Jackson? And, uh, 
and, and John's like, um, the, the, bat, <laughs> the bat hit him. You know, or, or whatever. Like, how many times I've had conversations. One, one time I, we're driving in the back of our, our car, and, and one of the kids was, like, um, crying back there, and this one's on Jackson. But I just said to the back, um, John was like, he scratched my arm and, or something like that. And I said, um, all right, what happened, Jackson? Did you scratch him? And Jackson's like, well, it, it might have been me, but I didn't see me do it. It is amazing how many times people's response, people's answer to thing, things actually is not what is true. It, it's what's going to get the outcome I want. I just want to encourage you guys with something. When it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to what God says about life, a lot of times we get in conversations, we're trying to share the gospel, we're trying to figure out how to do things. And sometimes when people ask us spiritual questions... We think more about how they will respond to what we say than what is true. I had a professor in college, and he used to just say to me, when in doubt, just tell the truth. And in my years of ministry, there have been times, I'm not at this church, every elder meeting at this church is amazing and it's wonderful, but there have been times that I've been going into really challenging elder meetings where there's going to be some very difficult things. There's a lot of things, a lot is at stake. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to say? How am I going to respond to this? What am I going to do about this? And it's so complicated and so difficult. And I just take a step back and think, well, what's true? There are times I've had to have conversations with people that are difficult where people are saying, why'd you do this? Or why did this happen? Or what's the deal with this? And it's these challenging things where I'm not sure how people are going to take things. I'm not sure what the outcome of this is going to be. And I just take a step back and I just think to myself, okay, what's the truth? If they're asking me why I did this, why did I do it? And to just take a step back and to think about that and say, okay, this is why I did it. Right or wrong? This is the truth. This is why I did it. Well, why are you asking me about this? It's not a chess game. Well, what's the, really, why am I asking? Well, just think about it. What's the truth and say it? And these Pharisees, they were religious. They were unconcerned about what was right. They had a personal agenda. And that's actually something that happens. When you're committed to God's agenda, you'll just tell the truth. And when somebody asks you a spiritual question that you think might be offensive, you will be less concerned about whether or not they are offended and more concerned with whether or not what you're telling them is true. And really, when you think about evangelism, sharing the gospel, how you function at church, how you function at work, a trust in God's sovereignty, where we just say, you know what? It's not my job to come up with my own stuff. It is not my job to tweak things. It's just my job to tell the truth and to trust God to work all that out. And by the way, Jesus has authority so we can trust him to work out anything. You know, it's so funny um, because the disciples in a couple chapters, we'll look at this later, but they asked Jesus, the, the, not the disciples, the Pharisees, asked Jesus a question. And they're thinking to themselves, okay, Jesus manipulated us because we care about the crowd. So let's manipulate him by the crowd. And it doesn't work. Um, I just want to read this verse. It's Matthew twenty-two sixteen, And they're going to ask him about taxes and they just say and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying teacher 
we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. And then they ask him a question that they think is going to get him in trouble. And by the way, it's Jesus, so it doesn't get him in trouble. But can I just tell you something? When we think about the authority of Jesus, it should make us people who can just tell the truth. We're not calculating things. We should be exactly like Jesus was, what they said about Jesus, to tell and teach truth, to not care about anybody's opinion because you're not swayed by appearances. And you could go on to say, you actually care what God thinks more than you care about what other people think. Now, in each of these passages... There is a great encouragement and also a warning. The encouragement in the first is that Jesus is the Messiah, and it is obvious. He's the Savior. The warning is just because you name Christ or cheer for him doesn't mean you know him. The cleansing of the table of the, of the temple, Jesus powerfully judges people who misrepresent him. The encouragement is that he loves the downcast and the rejected When he cursed the tree, that is a warning that there is a time limit for God's grace. It is not always going to be available, but it's an encouragement because Jesus' awesome power is available to his children. When he overcomes the Pharisees, the warning is that Jesus, people who oppose Jesus are powerless. The encouragement is for you and I. If we know Christ, we have nothing to fear anywhere. Can you think about how freeing that is? When you just get up in the morning and you do Matthew 5.33, where Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Your job when you get up in the morning is to say, Jesus, how do I seek your kingdom today? And all the other things in life I leave to you, but I'm going to get up, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to do what you want me to do. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for your power and your authority that is so clearly displayed all throughout Scripture, but especially in this passage. God, may it encourage us to love you, to love each other, to pursue your kingdom, to not be manipulated by other people, to just love and to care for and to build up the body of Christ in your name. Amen.